Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin. Have you wondered what the biggest fiat malinvestment is? Well, today, Safedin Amus, my friend and the author of the Bitcoin Standard and the author of the upcoming Fiat Standard book, rejoins me on the show and we talk about a bunch of things. We talk about what Bitcoin truly replaces, how to think about inflation, the infinity divided by 21 million meme. Is that right or is it wrong? We talk about some of the incentives and the cultural impact into society, as well as what a hyper-Bitcoinized future would look like. Now, have you started your automated stacking plan with Swan Bitcoin? Swan is the best way to accumulate Bitcoin with automatic recurring buys and instant buys. It's got fast setup. It's cheap to automate your stacking, especially for US customers. It's an ACH pool, buy Bitcoin and withdrawal is free. For international customers, you can wire in USD and set up your stacking plan that way. Swan Bitcoin takes a specific focus on education and content as well. So they're a great place to send your pre-coiner and new coiner friends. And for those of you who are high net worth individuals or if you've got friends and corporates or businesses to refer, Swan Private is available. Swan Private provides a dedicated Bitcoin account expert who is available for one-on-one calls and you get some additional guidance and assistance there. So to sign up, go to swanbitcoin.com slash levera. Lend at HodlHodl is a peer-to-peer Bitcoin-backed lending platform. You can lend out stablecoins or borrow against your Bitcoin globally and anonymously. So you can get extra income on your stablecoins. And if you, on the other hand, if you've got Bitcoins and you need some liquidity, you can now borrow against them without having to sell them. And in this model, you still hold one key in the two or three multi-signature. You know there's no rehypothecation because you can watch it and see it. And HodlHodl does not hold your funds. Lend at HodlHodl allows peer-to-peer lending and borrowing directly between users. With this platform, you set your terms and put up offers depending on how long you want to borrow or lend and the interest rate. Go to lend.hodlhodl.com. Have you always wanted to get involved in Bitcoin mining, but you just weren't sure where to get started? CompassMining.io can help you out. Go to CompassMining.io and select an ASIC machine. You can purchase that and have that shipped to a hosting facility that has already been vetted by the team at Compass. And then you can join a mining pool. You select the pool and you receive Bitcoin. So this is a great way to get involved without needing advanced technical knowledge. And Compass allows you to tap into the economies of scale because they are purchasing hardware at scale and they can help you get cheap industrial power rates. So go to compassmining.io and start mining Bitcoin today. On to the show with Safedean. Safedean, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me, Stefan. Always a pleasure. So Safe, I've been reading your new book, The Fiat Standard, which I highly recommend my listeners go and get get it. Um, so today we're going to talk a little bit about some of the ideas from there, as well as just you know your thoughts on the fiat standard uh, today in the world. So uh, maybe let's just start with a little bit of your thoughts around uh, you know h- how has the fiat standard evolved in, and your thinking on the fiat standard evolved over the last few months? Um, I'd say the um Maybe the most uh, significant change in the way that I see fiat over the last couple of years since writing the Bitcoin standard was thinking uh, really hard about how fiat works and why it works and what it does has given me, I, you know, uh, at the expense of pissing off some Bitcoiners, uh, it's given me some appreciation of the fact that there is some kind of uh, advantage to utilizing it. And I, I used to be a gold bug and I'm a fan of hard money. And so traditionally, I've always thought it was just a terrible idea. And I still think it's a terrible idea, but I can sort of see why it has come around. So I think, you know, the book starts with uh, the uh, with the story of Chesterton's uh, fence. Um, uh, C.K. Chesterton, or was it G.K. Chesterton? 
um, he tells the story of uh, two men who are walking down a field and then they see a fence and one of them thinks, hey, this fence is not serving any purpose. I don't understand why the fence is here. I'm just going to remove it. And the other one says, no, if you don't understand why it's here, then you shouldn't remove it. First, try and figure out why it is there and then then see uh, if you should remove it or not. If you don't know why it's there, if you don't know why it was put there, then you can't really tell whether it serves a purpose or not. And so I had that kind of idea trying to look into fiat. And to be fair, I think you know the best case that I would make for fiat is that uh, if you remember in the Bitcoin standard, my focus was on saleability across time that gold was money and Bitcoin is becoming money because its uh, supply increases at a very slow rate of increase, which means that it uh, holds on to its value well across time. So it has great saleability across time, which makes it a, uh, a good store of value. But thinking about, uh, you know, looking at the genesis of fiat, looking at the fiat white paper, as I describe it, when the Bank of England decided to go off gold, and looking at the circumstances back then, it's obviously it was very devious the way that fiat was installed, and it wasn't, um, it wasn't a good thing by any stretch of the imagination for the world. But you could see that when it happened, uh, gold did have a problem of saleability across space. So sending gold from A to B entails a significant loss in its value. And it's usually uh, something in the range of 0.5% or 1%. And in a sense, that's, that's a serious uh, defect, really, because it's good that your money holds on to its value across time, but you also want it to hold on to its value across space as you send it across. And so sending a gold bar across the Atlantic leads to a loss of somewhere between 0.1 to 1%, depending on what time and what uh, location and how it was done. And, you know, there was the risk that also the ship that it was carrying, it could be sunk. And that has happened, ships carrying gold. So it's not like it's something that's very uh, convenient to send across space. And in a sense, it's the same. Uh, it's the same kind of defect that fiat and easy monies have when sending a value across time. I don't think. Uh, I, I don't think you can make a case that this one is uh, that losing value across time is uh, just a fatal flaw in money, whereas losing value across space is something that's sh that, that's acceptable and it's just a normal part. And so, as governments started using their own credit to settle their own bills with one another it became uh, it became easier for them to just uh, you know use fake credit rather than using uh, gold because it entails l less loss of value so if it's all just digital entries in ledgers at the government's uh, banks and central banks then you can cross the atlantic a million times and uh, it costs the cost of a telegram or a phone call or an internet connection that's operating to continue to debit accounts between one and the other so i'd say you know to to, to think about why that fence is there in Chesterton's terms, or to think about why this fiat exists, you can't really deny the fact that it's just very expensive to settle gold across space. And that makes it easy for governments to capture money. I Obviously, I agree it would be ideal if they would uh, offer a free market in money and banking. And then if there is a free market in money and banking, then 
the hardest money would be chosen. You know, if there was a free market, then bank in any money they want, but most likely the hardest money is going to win. But the alternative, which is if governments prevent a free market and money from emerging, well, the alternative is that you can't just take your gold and settle it outside of the government. It's very hard to take gold and run a financial system. I mean, you could maybe smuggle a few ounces or uh, maybe even a few kilograms of gold here and there, but you can't really run a global settlement network between banks and financial institutions across national borders without the government finding out. If you're running a banking system, they're going to find out. And if you try and send the gold without them, it's going to be very expensive, very uncertain. The risk of getting caught is very high. So that's, I think, just a, a, a failure of gold. Um, it's, it's, it's compromised its saleability across space. And that leads to, it, it becomes possible for governments to implement their uh, fiat systems with catastrophic consequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's funny in some ways, because sometimes when we're out here trying to teach people about Bitcoin, oftentimes they they have the wrong comparative in their mind that they think it's it's, it's like a PayPal or that it's, you know, it's going to be a day-to-day transaction. So whereas, as you rightly point out in the book, and our great friend Pierre Richard also loves to call it savings technology. Yeah. And so I think it really is. It's savings technology and international money transfer. That, that's what Bitcoin uniquely does. That is it's in business school parlance, the unique, the USP, the unique selling point. That is the USP of Bitcoin. It's not... Uh, you know, this idea that you are just going to have a PayPal or that you could uh, you could just do away with it all and just have stable coins. Well, that's not exactly what we're trying to solve here, is it? Yeah, because all of these things, stable coins or bank accounts, they're going to have to run on a monetary settlement network. And that's really the uh, challenge. What do you settle with? And either you're going to be using uh, central banks and banks and their financial uh, instruments and their uh, settlement networks, or the only alternative that exists is Bitcoin. It's it's the only thing that's actually independent. And this is why I think, you know, the fiat standard gave me an appreciation of why fiat works, but it also gave me an even bigger appreciation of why Bitcoin fixes this. Because not only does it have gold's great saleability across time, it also has better saleability across space than both gold and fiat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it seems to me that Oftentimes with government, things come in and then the institutions just build up around that. And so sometimes it just exists because that was what was there before, right? It's for a legacy reason. And sometimes it's obviously while you and I have our criticisms of the government, both of which we are quite strong, crit, crit, you know, uh, quite critical of the government, it, it's not necessarily that all the people in the government are evil and intending to do these things. It's more that as a system, it just drives these bad incentives and it just drives this bad outcome, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's um, in a sense, uh, it's kind of inevitable. Uh, Once global trade uh, became such an important part of the world economy in the 19th century, because the entire world was trading with one another, because everybody was using the same currency, which is the gold standard, but also more importantly, because of the new technologies that made transportation possible. You know, when we had trains and airplanes and uh, cars and uh, modern steamships, it became much cheaper to move things from uh, Europe to the US. And so not only did people move, but also uh, goods started moving more and more frequently. And so as goods started to move internationally much more, money had to move internationally as well. And that was the limitation of gold. And uh, 
in a sense, you can uh, you know you can you can be um, ideological about it and say you know they should have done this and they should have done that, which I'm sympathetic to. But why could they get away with what they did? Well, the reason they got away with it is from an engineering perspective. You know, taking emotions out of it. Once trade became such an important part of the global economy, then being able to provide the payment rails that would allow people to settle payments with people in other countries, being able to provide those payment rails became as important as uh, the actual monetary medium itself. In a sense, the gold standard, the, the medium of exchange in the gold standard was not just gold, or the, the, the monetary asset underlying the gold standard was not just gold. It was gold and the banks that make gold's movement possible. The fact that you needed the banks is a function of gold's properties. You know, it was just not easy to send an ounce of gold halfway around the world. It's very expensive. If you wanted to do it with an ounce of gold, uh, you know, to pay somebody to send it, there'll be a significant uh, cost. And so if somebody manages to build a settlement network that settles periodically, you know, you have a, a bank in England and a bank in New York, and they, uh, you know, they perform one settlement transaction at the end of the year or at the end of the month, that's just enormously cheaper for people who trade in the US and uh, England to open an account with that bank and have their payments settled once a month. You know, that way you could get 100,000 trades between people in England and Britain for every physical movement of a coin between uh, England and the US. So it's just natural that as trade grew uh, and the scale of uh, economic transactions grew and the size and the importance and the distance uh, started to increase gold just couldn't keep up it just was not able to be sent in a way that allowed people to hold on to its value and we can we can romanticize the gold coin and the way that the gold coin holds on to its value but the reality is you can't send a gold coin coin halfway around the world but your government uh, if it strikes a deal with the other government It'll allow a central bank that operates in its territory to settle with a central bank that operates in the other territory. And then that's just an infinitely cheaper way of conducting trade and transactions. And that's why it won, because people need to settle trades in the present. Uh, by the 20th century, uh, you know, if you, by the, by the early 20th century, the modern technology that we had, the modern life that we had, was not possible without globalization. There was, uh, there was nowhere in the world that was industrialized that had modern machinery that could survive and uh, continue to thrive and to have all of these modern technologies without trading significantly with the rest of the planet. You had to trade. The division of labor had grown so much that you needed to be trading with other people all across the world in order to be able to have all of the nice things that you have, you know, the, the car and the uh, electronics and uh, all the heavy machinery and the engines. That was a highly sophisticated uh, division of labor that was involved in all of those things. And if you wanted to live in an isolated island, you couldn't have them, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so really what we have to do then is comparatively assess these different things like gold versus fiat versus Bitcoin transactions, right? So when we're transacting gold, as you were saying, it's it could be to 1% per transfer. And in the in the Bitcoin land, it's it's more like you, you, you could be paying today at today's rates on chain, you might be paying a couple dollars. Now we expect that to rise over time. If you're paying on lightning, you might literally be paying a few cents for a transaction. But 
when we're using fiat, we have to, I think that's the important comparative is to understand what are the true costs of the fiat overarching system. And of course, this comes into the energy conversation as well, because people say, oh, look, you're using as much Bitcoin, you Bitcoin people are using as much energy as a whole country, what a waste. And then people sort of argue back and say, oh, but look, look how much the the financial system is using. But maybe even that is not the right comparative, because as you rightly point out, people could build a financial system up on top of Bitcoin. And there would be Bitcoin companies who in turn have staff and offices and printers and all of the, and the like. But what is the true comparative when we're talking about Bitcoin versus fiat and the costs of fiat? Yeah, exactly. And that's what I try and focus on in the book in that it makes sense when you think about it as a cheap way of uh, settling payments. But then one century later, we look at all the drawbacks of having an easy money that governments can control. And then you see that the cost is enormous and that as Mises used to say about the gold standard you know when you had uh, people like Keynes and um, other clueless people would say that gold is useless because it costs a lot of money and it's a very expensive monetary system Mises would rightly point out it's very cheap when you compare it to the cost of inflation that's what Mises used to say Uh, this is the thing with fiat so initially it makes settling the payments quickly but then uh, it, it makes settling the payments quick and cheap but then the bill comes in later and the bill is very very expensive because it involves you know destroying the capital stock of society because first of all your money is losing value so people start losing the incentive to save and then without real savings you need to rely on credit expansion in order to finance investments and so that then causes the business cycle and it causes all of the problems that we saw in the 20th century, which most people today think it's just, you know, that's what capitalism does. Capitalism has crises and financial panics. And that's uh, that's the price to pay to not be a communist country. You know, either we have a communist system or we have to have capitalism, which involves a lot of crashes. And of course, that's nonsense. That's fiat that does those things. It's not capitalism that does it. And then I think my favorite hobby horse is uh, time preference. I think the most important thing that fiat has done is that it is raised human time preference over the last 100 years enormously and if you look at the uh, if you look at the world up until the 20th century all over the world we had a process where everybody was constantly moving toward a harder and harder money people used primitive forms of money and then whenever a harder money showed up in their town destroyed the easy money and they had to move to the hard money and everybody went on constantly hardening their money and therefore having a better mechanism for transferring value to the future and therefore becoming less uncertain about the future so as your uncertainty about the future declines because you can provide for your future then you see that it becomes likely that you're discounting the future less and less in other words your time preference begins to drop so you start thinking about the future more you start thinking about providing for your future more and you see this as a natural process in human society we're constantly uh saving more and thinking more about the future it's just like a a millennia long uh journey and if you look at there's a book called five thousand years of or a history of interest rates Mm -hmm. and they've got data for um for five thousand years of interest rates essentially and you see that interest rates have been declining basically for all of human history uh, the long-term trend is that they decline and then occasionally you get wars and famines and uh, empire collapses and bad things happen. And during those periods, interest rates spike up and then they crash. But they 
the, the long-term trend is in decline. We're constantly lowering our interest rate because we're saving more, capital is becoming more available, and therefore it's becoming cheaper to borrow capital from its owners because they have more and more capital. So this is the process that is constantly going on. And then you look at the 20th century and you can see that it's reversed. Interest rates start rising in the 20th century, and they continue to rise up until the 1970s, when interest rates become manipulated by governments and are manipulated to drop constantly. Well, I mean, they rise until the 80s, and then they uh, begin to decline from the 1980s till now, now that we've hit zero. But it's I don't think interest rates now are an accurate reflection of time preference, because they're uh, essentially a centrally planned uh, market signal. It's been a century of people having something that is quite unheard of historically, which is the long-term use of a form of money that continuously gets easier over time. It doesn't get harder. It doesn't get uh, better at storing value. It just keeps getting easier and easier. It just keeps becoming as a store of value. And so you see, as the 20th century goes on, I think our time preference all over the world begins to rise more and more. People start discounting the future more. And you see it, I think, in everything. You see it in the fact that people don't save anymore. You see it in the fact that you see it in art, you see it in music, you see it in uh, in architecture. Uh, one, I think, is a very interesting one. You know, in the 20th century, we have the technology that makes construction cheaper than it has ever been. You know, we have machines that make moving heavy things around much cheaper. In the 18th and 19th century, we had to rely extensively on a lot of backbreaking human labor, which is very expensive compared to machines. You know, you get a machine to move things around and you pay once for the machine and you pay a little bit of cost for the fuel and it can do the work of a thousand workers uh, every day. So making houses has never been cheaper than it is now. And yet we look at the houses that we make and we see that they're, you know, in, instead of taking advantage of this advanced technology to build better houses and more durable houses, we're making cheaper houses that are shorter lived. I think this is quite interesting that the houses that are being built today don't live long. And I have an interesting example that I use the two buildings for the Boston Public Library. Uh, the first one was built in the 1890s or 1880s, um, and it is the McKim building. And that building cost something like, um, I think it was $70 million in uh, today's money to build it back in the 1880s. So it was $2 million back then. And then you look at the, uh, I think it's called the Johnson Building, the second uh, Boston Library building, which was built in 1970. That building, well, you know, it's built in 1970s style. So it's nicknamed the Mausoleum, the Mausoleum, the, uh, essentially the graveyard, because it looks, uh, it's a big, ugly box of concrete with tiny windows. And uh, the old building, the McKim building, is one of the nicest buildings in Boston. It's one of the main tourist attractions of Boston. And the new one is an ugly box. You would think, well, you know, now we can make these buildings so much cheaper. So that's why we're using, you know, we're economizing. We can have more libraries now because we can make them cheaper. But that doesn't hold up because the ugly building that is short-lived, that needs constant maintenance, is not cheaper. In fact, in 2010, I think it was, the uh, newer building, the one that was built in the 70s, needed a massive overhaul that cost something like $70 million. So for $70 million in 2010 or so, I may be off a little bit on the dates, but $70 million back then 
you built, you renovated the building that was built in the 1970s. And for the same amount of money, in real terms, not in nominal terms, for the same amount of money in the 1890s, you built the most beautiful building in Boston. Something doesn't add up here, you know? Why didn't they, instead of instead of just re- renovating the old, the new ugly building, 1970s building, why didn't they just replace it with a nice one like the one that was built in the 1890s? Why don't they make it, why don't they make these anymore? It's a very interesting question. And I think it's because of time preferences, because they don't want to build something that will last. So they'll build something that is as cheap as possible, but uh, they justify the um, cheapness effectively because of the fact that you don't care about the long term. You discount the long term heavily under fiat. And that's why in the 19th century, they built buildings so they could last 100 years. Today, you know, 20 years tops is what people really care about. They don't care about building them in the long term. And if you think about it, if your time preference rises, your discounting of the future rises. And then, um, you know, small increases in the discounting of the future, they add up, they compound. And so things that uh, are taking place in your life more than 20 years from now, they have, uh, they, they have a value of zero. So the architecture is optimized for impressing people in the present. It's optimized for making a statement and for um, winning awards and for, you know, looking uh, interesting. The kind of the, you know, the novelty and shock value is what they spend their money on. But they heavily discount what's going to happen to the building in 50 years time because they don't care about 50 years because everybody's time preference has risen and everybody's discounting the future more and more. Yeah, very, very interesting way to put it. And I think there might be different contributing factors to this. And I think as correctly, as you say, the fiat money is the underlying driver of so much of this in terms of economics, cultural, social elements of this, where people are now not thinking as much about the future and also to the point that you were making around interest rates over 5,000 years. Now, it, it's true, historically, as society, and as Hopper points this out, as you know, as society uh, advances, it's because of capital accumulation. And over time, people were able to lower their time preference in a genuine sense. But I think what we're talking about here, just for listeners who are unclear, it's this, it's this idea that because of fiat and central banking and all of the rest of it, legal tender laws, capital gains tax laws, lender of last resort, all of that, because of those interventions, it artificially pushes the interest rates lower. But our actual time preference is not that low. And so there's like a mismatch there. And so from an Austrian perspective, we would say, well, there's consumer goods and capital goods. And capital goods are the, what we use to create the consumer goods. But there are multiple stages to this. And so we talk about production um, stages of production and so this production structure and so I guess the the point we're getting to here is that because of central banking and because of that uh, creation of money without having underlying savings people are sort of reaching their they they think they can make this project profitable when really it won't be and so this is kind of getting into that idea of how fiat money is causing this boom bust cycle uh, in the Austrian uh, understanding of economics. Do you have anything you'd like to add there? Yeah, um, I, I think I agree with you entirely. It's um, it's uh, ultimately when the money itself is manipulated, when the money is supply itself can be manipulated, then all prices are uh, suspect, and interest rate is one of these. But I think uh, the effect that this distortion has, I mean, it's 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 like when you have a centrally planned economy, and then the government says. You know the potatoes are going to be priced at this price. I mean, 
yeah, if you look at the statistics, then potatoes are cheap and affordable and uh, communism works. But in practice, <laughs> you go and you find that there's no potatoes on the shelves. And in fact, if you actually want potatoes, you know, you have to have a connection to somebody in the underground potato farming uh, industry and you have to pay a lot more. And it's, uh, it, it, it's kind of like this. And I think the... Um, you know, when you when you put them together, the second part of my book looks at all of the impact. Well, not all. Obviously, you can't you can't uh, look at all the impacts in one book um, because money is extremely pervasive. Money is one half of every transaction in society. So, um, but I look at several of the uh, costs, and I think you know you you reach a conclusion which is. We'd have been better off paying the expensive uh, transaction fees on gold than having to destroy all of society, basically, in order to uh, make these payments go through. I mean, it's just uh, effectively the way that the fiat standard works, uh, when I describe it in kind of engineering terms, is that you're compromising savings, you're compromising the ability to accumulate capital, you're compromising increases in productivity, you're giving up on the integrity of the monetary system, and you're giving an enormous amount of money and wealth and power to governments to centrally plan and manipulate and control markets and control people's lives. That's causing an enormous amount of destruction in the economy. Um, and I discuss the impact that it has on energy markets, on food markets, and on all kinds of aspects. Effectively, what the fiat standard comes down to in engineering terms is let's save up on gold transaction fees. And, you know, in order to save up on that, let's, we, we'll incur enormous uh, costs in the long run in terms of really civilizational destruction. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, it's breaking apart at the fundamental building block of civilization, which is lowering time preference, accumulating capital, and investing into the future and increasing productivity. Fiat literally reverses that process. It pushes us backward in the uh, human evolution and advancement uh, process. And it's just not a price worth paying, in, in my opinion, for... Uh, for saving up on transaction fees, just pay your transaction fees, kids. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Sometimes you've got to you've got to pay up front. Sometimes it's short term loss for long term gain. Whereas the fiat world and the world we live in today is very much like a I want to minimize my short term cost and I don't care about the long term pain that we're all going to feel because of that very short sighted desire. And another way to think of it for listeners who might not be quite clear what's going on, one way to think of it is like think like an animal in the in the safari or somewhere. They have an extremely high time. They're thinking about survival. They're thinking, where's my next meal coming from? And how do I not be eaten? Right? That's literally the level that they are at. And we as humans have the capacity to go the other end of the spectrum. We can plan and build things that will be around even literally once we're dead. That is the like the difference. But the time preference is what can shift that. And money, the money we use has a big impact on that. Um, I think it's probably also fair to say and i think you and i have been quite vocal on this is this idea of cultural impacts that nowadays people are all about short-term attention span you know they want to watch these little five second tiktok videos instead of the one hour lecture or better better yet read an actual book spend 10 hours reading a book instead of these little five second clips and potentially it's impacted on all of us in some ways into our attention span wouldn't you say 
Absolutely. I think, um, you know, obviously technology probably has a role to play in that, but I think people underestimate how differently we could be using all of these technologies. You know, the fact that we can make uh, houses much cheaper doesn't mean that we need to make uh, crappy houses. We could uh, use that to make better houses. And I think also the fact that we have such an abundance of media doesn't necessarily need to distract us to have such a low time preference, such a high time preference and uh, to lose our focus. It could it, it could be used more productively. And some people manage to use it more productively, you know. Uh, for a lot, of, a lot of people, the fact that there's a lot of uh, media out there, um, you know, it doesn't... Uh, it doesn't turn your attention span low. It's just, you know, you focus and the extra technology allows you to get access to uh, better media and better uh, materials. Um, but I think culturally, I don't think you can really deny that. And the more you think about it, the more you start seeing it, the more it's the more pervasive it is. And the way that I like to think of it, the way I, I illustrate it in the book is look at the example of a country that's going through hyperinflation. And then look at how people act under hyperinflation. And then just uh, realize that low inflation is just the same thing, but at a much lower scale. You know, if you look at uh, people in um, Lebanon today or in Venezuela or in Zimbabwe or previously in, in Weimar, Germany, when there was hyperinflation, you see a lot of regularities in, in the way that people behave when their money is broken. You see, for instance, one of the most obvious ones is that as soon as you get paid any amount of money, you automatically rush to consume it as fast as you can. So you get paid your salary on the first day of the month. On the first day of the month, everybody's at the supermarket and everybody's trying to buy things. This is, I, I lived in Brazil for a couple of years when I was a kid, and this is a, a memory that I remember, which is, you know, why was it that, uh, and, and they'd show this on TV, and you'd see that on the first day of the month, the supermarkets would be a war zone because everybody's jumping in to try and uh, sell, uh, to try and sell their fiat and to gain as much stuff as possible because within a few days when everybody has their paychecks, everybody has spent them in a few days, prices are going to be up. And so you go and you buy all of your goods for the month today or you get half if you buy them in two weeks. And so in that kind of world... Everybody wants to spend their money as fast as they can, but also you see um, you see it happening in uh, other aspects of life as well. You know, people are constantly fighting with each other because, uh, and and you can understand why they would do that. You can understand why crime increases. Obviously, I'm not justifying it, but you can understand why. You know, the same people that were peaceful. Um, and with very little crime, when they had a money that held on to its value, would be uh, becoming more rabid and violent because they're discounting the future more because they need survival today. They need to figure out how to feed my family for the rest of the month. You know, I've spent all my paycheck in the first day and it's now the third week of the month and we've run out of food and I've got one more week of hungry kids at home. And that's just, you know... Um, th 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 that's a very pressing thing today that would make you do things that you otherwise wouldn't. You know, you'd consider breaking into your neighbor's home and stealing some of their money or some of their food. You'd consider breaking into a bank or into a supermarket and to do things like that because it's very pressing and because, well, you know, okay, maybe you get caught, but uh, that's a very high cost. But you're discounting that very heavily because if you don't get caught, if you don't steal, you might die. You might starve. Your kids might die. So um, 
when we're constantly becoming less secure in the present and in the future, when the present is constantly becoming less and less uh, certain, then uh, people discount it more and more, and people focus more and more on um, the day-to-day. People start discounting. And so um, people will, uh, social bonds that tie people together become less and less significant. You know, this guy's your cousin or your business partner or your friend. Usually you really care about maintaining a relationship with them because, you know, for 20, 30 years, you've been family friends. And under normal situations, you'd want to remain on good terms for many years. But um, if he's trusting you to look out for his stuff, or if you find a way where you can go into his house, you can risk that friendship because having another 20, 30 years of friendship or a good relationship with this person, business partner or or family member is far more difficult, Uh, is far less... uh, it's far less valuable when your present is hunger. You know, you're hungry today. You might die this week. So who cares about what he can do to you in 20 years time? So you're willing to sacrifice the trust and the relationship that has been built over 20, 30 years in order to get a quick uh, meal for your kids today. So it's it, you see this constantly um, across societies that are witnessing hyperinflation. Uh, the the future is very heavily discounted because it's highly uncertain. We can't provide for it. We don't have a mechanism for providing for our future. And so we start discounting it heavily. Back to the show after a message for the sponsors. Coinkite.com are the creators of my favorite Bitcoin hardware wallet, the cold card. This is one of the most recommended hardware wallets by Bitcoiners. I think it's the best in the market and it's got so many features like the ability to be used air-gapped with a micro SD card. You can use it with Spectre Desktop or Sparrow or Electrum or Blue Wallet. Now, I've long been a fan of this wallet. It offers very high security at a relatively low price point, and it does PSBT natively. That's partially signed Bitcoin transactions. You can use it in single signature or as part of a multi-signature setup. So go to coinkite.com and order yours. Use the code Lavera to get a discount. Unchained Capital are helping you set up your multi-signature vault and offer services like loans. Now, their service has been getting quite popular. People want to go and get set up with multi-signature and Unchained can help you do that. You can remove the single points of failure and not be relying on just one single hardware wallet or worse, leaving them on the exchange. So it's not that hard. You can get help. There's a concierge onboarding program that will help walk you through the process. So as part of the concierge program, you get shipped two hardware wallets. There will be a video call to get you set up. And even if you've never held your own keys, you can get set up and do this. And so once you're in, then you can easily access other services as well, like buying and selling Bitcoin, Bitcoin retirement accounts, and Bitcoin-backed loans. So go to unchanged-capital.com concierge and get $50 off with the code Levera. And we can't finish off without talking about backups. CypherGrid is a new product coming out from cyphersafe.io. This is the best value metal seed in the industry. You get everything you need for $59. It's BIP39 compatible, so that means that 12 or 24 words and you only need to punch in for four tiles of each word and this product has privacy by default the two plates are facing each other it's got stainless steel hardware you can lock it with a padlock and you get a tamper evidence seal as well so you know if it's been opened or tampered you get an automatic center punch provided also and just like all cypher safe products it's made from stainless steel fireproof rust proof and waterproof so get yours cyphersafe.io and use the code lavera for a discount back to the show
Yeah. And so it essentially causes people to go and do things that they would not have if they had access to a good savings technology, because then they would have actually had a cash balance and they would have been able to, all the people in that society could have their own little buffer or safety net. If say they lost their job, they've got enough cash and savings to be able to tide them over and tide the family over until they find a new job or start up a new business or something. And so it really changes society and it changes all of these aspects. And I think the inflation is one of those things where it's hard to explain because for a lot of people, they just think more money is good, less money is bad. They're not thinking about the underlying value of that money going away over time. So how should we think about like what kind of percent um, inflation in the book? You mentioned a few uh, numbers. So I think you said averaging across all fiats, it's something like 32%, but that's an equal weighting. So perhaps, you know, well, let's say um, I think you said 10% for the average fiat user and say 7.5% for the US user. Could you elaborate on these different numbers and why most people are thinking about it wrong? Yeah, I think, you know, Bitcoin shows us, uh, empirically speaking, um, it shows us that you don't need the money supply to increase as much as the economy grows in order for the money to work. So, I mean, this is just something that's obvious to anybody who can think about the issue for 15 minutes with clarity. It's very simple. You know, you you don't need inches to be expanded in order for people to grow taller and you don't need the money supply to expand in order for the economy to grow we can run the entire world economy on 100 trillion dollars or 100 billion dollars or 100 dollars as long as the unit itself can be divided into smaller units and of course in the case of fiat it's all fiat so it's all entries on ledger so we could have you know we could have spent the entirety of the last 100 years on the supply let's say if in 1914 the whole world went down to a fiat standard like if you really wanted to make it so that it is the best possible fiat standard for the users and not for the government you would have said like if you really wanted to take keynes's ideas about the cost of gold seriously all right gold is too expensive all right so let's move on to a fiat money where we replace the current gold stock the the current number of fiat notes that we have that are backed by gold that's the amount of money that we have and we're just going to keep it fixed and we're not going to print any more money like in 1914 the amount of money that was available that was you know gold backed if you wanted to really run a sane fiat standard you'd just say all right so we have say 1 billion us dollars that's the only billion us dollars that will ever exist there will only ever be 1 billion us dollars and you could make them so that they're all trackable on the fiat uh, centralized blockchain at the central bank so everybody has a share of those uh, 1 billion dollars and we could have run the entire world economy on those uh, 1 billion dollars up until today and what would have happened is that prices would have continued to fall for the last century this is how you would have run a proper fiat standard and there's no reason for the money supply to to increase at all um, so goods would have continued to be produced at increasing rates and the amount of money that is uh, used is constant and so prices would have been increasing every day and so today you know i think we would be living in a world in which um, a house would probably cost something like five dollars and uh, you know an annual salary would be 50 cents and that's fine. You know, we would have found names for uh, units that are subsense. And like, you know, your, your, your coffee would be worth something like uh, one millionth of a dollar. Uh, but that's fine. <laughs> uh, there'd be a name for it. And there'd be a fiat piece of paper uh, that is uh, issued by the central bank uh, that is uh, for that amount. And the economy would function. And, you know, if you saved up a million uh, coffees, 
you could trade them for a house if you save up for the cost of million coffees. And I think everybody in that kind of world, everybody would have had large cash balances of savings that they would have accumulated. So really, we know because of Bitcoin that you don't need the money supply to increase. We've seen how the Bitcoin economy grows on average at around 200% per year, nominal uh, face value in fiat terms. But the Bitcoin supply now is growing at less than 2%. And before it was at 4 and then it was at around 10 or so. So the the growth in the economy can be many, many, many times larger than the growth in the money supply. And I don't see why it would be a problem if the growth in those money supply was 0%. So effectively, all of the uh, inflation that we've had over the last century has been just unnecessary waste, taking money from money holders, taking economic value from holders of money and uh, putting it and, and giving it to governments and allowing governments to essentially run crazy with it. And so trying to estimate how much that is, I think the best estimate would be to look at the growth, the supply growth rate of the M2 money supply. And if you look at the... Um, the most uh, consistent and comparable measure we have is uh, the World Bank's measure of uh, money, M2. And you look at the average growth rate, it's been around 29% It has uh, for the past uh, 55 years. So from 1965 until 2020, it averages at 29%. That's the average performance. That's the average increase in the supply of each fiat currency over the past 50 years. But this is probably overstated uh, a little bit because for two reasons. First of all, this doesn't include Euro economies and the European economies have had uh, something closer to 7% uh, annual increase in the supply. And also this gives each currency uh, equal weight. So we're looking at, oh, you know, this is the numerical average which puts the Lebanese lira and the Venezuelan uh, uh, Bolivar they're all equal to, the, you know, they all count as much as the U.S. dollar. But of course, that's not really very uh, fair uh, on fiat because the U.S. dollar is used by far more people. So if you look at the better currencies, the better fiat currencies, they're averaging something like 7% per year over the, this period. So the supply is increasing at around 7%. So it's it, I'm still struggling to figure out... Um, a good way of making the weighing of the uh, of the uh, all all of the currencies together, but basically, if you wanted to weigh it by market cap in terms of how much each currency is worth, you'll end up with something in the range of ten to fifteen percent. So basically, the average fiat user is using is losing something like ten to fifteen percent of their uh, wealth in fiat every year because of inflation. And um, even if the prices aren't rising by 10%, that doesn't really matter because prices are dropping for many goods because of increases in economic productivity. But if there was no inflation, all of that drop in prices would be uh, reflected in uh, essentially a, a negative uh, inflation rate, a negative price inflation rate. So we're missing out on, uh, you know, you're missing out on an average of 10%. And even, even if your inflation shows up as, as 5%, you know, uh, it could have been that we had 5% deflation, price deflation. We'd have had a 5% decline in prices in a world like that. And of course, I discuss how it's not possible to think of inflation as a scalar metric. I'm with... Um, 
Michael Saylor on thinking of it as a vector. Uh, inflation depends on the goods that you're looking at. And so for the more valuable and more desirable goods, inflation is always much higher than the CPI because the CPI includes a lot of industrial stuff that is uh, very cheap to produce at scale. And so it doesn't suffer as much from inflation. And because people substitute away from good things into buying cheaper things, that severely undermines, uh, severely understates the extent of inflation. You know, if everybody was still uh, eating, uh, if everybody would eat the good food, inflation would show up at a much higher price. But people have to make do because they can't afford the uh, better food, so they eat the cheaper foods. And then the ma- the basket of good looks like it is not rising in price as much. But you could think of it as something you know, conservatively, we'll say ten percent per year as a uh, as a metric, and then. Uh, money, fiat money, is roughly a quarter of the world's wealth, uh, world's financial wealth. So uh, people keep uh, you know money in financial assets a lot of more. There's a lot more money in financial assets than there is in uh, fiat money, and that's because you know fiat money is uh, broken. But uh, so that's basically ten percent of twenty-five percent every year. So two point five percent of the world's wealth is basically, conservatively speaking, two point five percent of the world's wealth every year is being destroyed through fiat, and that's a very conservative estimate. And it's enormous when you think about it. Two point five percent of the world's wealth, and that's a, that's, a, that's a really conservative estimate of it. It's 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 an enormous amount. But what's even worse about it is if you really think of it. Uh, you know, the, who holds the uh, majority or who is being affected by it the most? If you were to think about who holds the majority of the cash, the majority of the cash is held by rich people who don't, for which it doesn't constitute a major problem. You know, most rich people don't have most of their wealth in uh, fiat money, not in physical cash and not in checking accounts. They have it in real estate, they have it in stocks and bonds and all kinds of uh, fiat financial instruments. But they don't keep cash on hand, and if they, they'll obviously have a lot more cash than poor people. But it'll be a much smaller percentage of their, uh, of their savings or of their wealth. But um, for the vast majority of people in the world, the vast majority of their wealth is in cash. So the poorest people in the world, you know, they're the people who have fifty dollars in savings, and they're in cash. Yeah. Um, in it could be in dollars or it could be in uh, their local currency, and these are the people that are losing the the most. You know, uh, rich people can protect themselves from inflation by buying financial assets, but poor people can't buy assets, and poor people can't buy uh, you know gold and sit on gold and pay all the uh, costs of maintaining and moving gold around. They can't buy stocks. They can't afford to buy hard assets, and so they the, their only hope of saving into the future is cash. Their only hope is just holding on to money. And then that's constantly being destroyed. And it's constantly being destroyed to pump the numbers for <laughs> stocks and bonds and government. Exactly. Uh, uh, yeah, and all, all the fiat instruments that are held by the richest people. So it's it's absolutely staggering. You know, you see so many fiat people constantly prancing on about Oh, inequality is bad, inequality is bad. And yet nobody ever mentions this. Nobody ever mentions the fact that government money, which usually, you know, to be fair to these people that are always on about inequality, fiat economists that talk about inequality, you know, 
um, they're paid by fiat and they're they're effectively parasites who don't have real jobs that would exist on the market. They're paid by government agencies that print money and hand them that money. So when you see people like Piketty or Krugman or all of these uh, fake fiat uh, socialist economists going on about the problems of inequality, they're not going to point out at the they're not going to at point the, the finger yeah. at the mechanism at the root at the mechanism that is every year punishing the world's poorest people and but with something like if they're lucky 10 percent inflation and the majority of the world's poorest people don't have access to the world's best currencies they're having to save in their local shit coins and so they're losing 10 20 30 40 maybe 90 percent a year of their uh, wealth and on the other hand, that inflation is going to pump the bags of uh, rich people and to pay the salaries of fiat parasites like uh, fiat economists. You know? Yeah. But they don't talk about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. So to summarize then, of course, uh, talking about the people who are hurt by the fiat standard, these are people who are poor, people who are saving into cash, you're losing. If you're a later comer in terms of the new money, now the people who are winning out of the fiat standard is government because they have a lot of debt. The people who get a lot of debt, the people who get that new debt first, uh, people who are able to maneuver the system well such that they can play the debt game very well, uh, they, they are all massively benefiting and profiting. And even this effect is, if anything, amplified during this covid hysteria era over the last year or so we've seen some of them just absolutely kill it in terms of how much profit they've made um i also wanted to touch on just those total figures as well as you were saying the total money stock of the world so i guess just some rough numbers just to throw them out there so people have a concept of what's going on if we were to look at something like broad money us m3 globally would be something in that kind of 90 trillion range and then global wealth on some of the recent Credit Suisse estimates, is around $400 trillion. So, And I think they rightly say part of that is because US dollar has gone down a little bit relative to two years ago. Obviously, there's been a lot of inflation. So I think that's an interesting question as well because some people in the Bitcoin world, there's this kind of meme of infinity divided by 21 million, but I'm actually starting to think that's not quite right because the global stock of money in the world is something like 90, million, 90 trillion and the global wealth is like 400 trillion. So... I'm wondering what you think. As an example, I'll let me give it to you this way. Let's say, let's just for a hypothetical say 21 million Bitcoins have been issued. Could it be the case that global wealth is actually 80 million Bitcoins? Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, I think that's, uh, yeah, I think so. I, th I think that would likely be the case. I think global wealth will be larger than uh, the supply of Bitcoin just because um, you're not storing all of the wealth in Bitcoin. A lot of that wealth is stored in actual capital that is outside of Bitcoin. And then if you measure the the, preval the prevalent market price for that, you know, the, the mark to market, yeah, you could take this factory and sell it for uh, 100 Bitcoin today, but uh, you're not. And so somebody else has the 100 Bitcoin, you have the factory and the factory is worth 100 Bitcoin. So if you measured the value of all the capital all the stocks out there, it'll be worth, uh, you know, you, it'll be worth more than the amount of uh, Bitcoin that is uh, stored. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, it, it, we're not going to have everything go into Bitcoin. It's not all of the world's financial assets because I think there will still be stocks. There will still be equity. But I think we're going to eat pretty much everything. There will still be real estate, a lot of real estate, but it won't be used as a store of value. And I think we'll go back to a world in which people buy houses that they need to live in and the consideration. I mean, people go back to thinking about houses 
as a consumer good, which I think is something that Bitcoiners have. And it's something that I've tweeted once. I tweeted it almost as an afterthought, as a response to somebody. And you know, somebody was saying, well, a house is a capital good. I said, no, the house is like a washing machine or a computer. It's a long-lived, durable good. It's uh, you know something that you use up and you need to maintain. And uh, it doesn't... Uh, pay you cash obviously if you rent out a house then yeah that is a capital good but uh that that is an investment you know you're paying money and it's producing a cash flow but um people holding their house as an asset is as a saving account effectively is i think a phenomenon that is just fiat it's just because of fiat and once you upgrade to the fiat to the bitcoin standard you have no use for that you know you don't need a house as you don't need to buy a house as a saving account you buy the house that you need and if you don't want to be tied down to a place you don't have to buy a house and you move around um so i think um this is yeah this is this is what's what's likely to happen in my mind is that bitcoin is going to eat the cash uh, portion of global wealth and the cash substitutes so all these crappy substitutes for cash that people use so all the monetary premium on real estate is likely to be eaten up by bitcoin all the monetary premium on art uh, is likely to be eaten up by bitcoin but i think the really big one and, and of course all i would imagine government monies uh, are going to be eaten up by bitcoin so the bond market and things yeah, yeah. Uh, government monies would like to be you know either eaten up by bitcoin or backed by bitcoin but i think the the main course the big one is the bond market i i i'm making the argument in this book that bitcoin obsoletes bonds i have a couple of pages of why i think you know we wouldn't have bonds in this world and i think that would be a wonderful thing and um, i I'd like to think of myself as a bond abolitionist. You know, I, I hope a hundred years from now, people look at me and say, you know, what are the people who fought the bond market and destroyed it? <laughs> You'll be like the George Soros, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Like, I think that the, the bonds are just a terrible uh, idea. I, I don't see, um, and I think the demand for bonds is driven by the fact that people need a store of value because cash is a shitty store of value, and so. Uh, in, in a world in which you had good cash, why would you want to hold a bond and take on the credit risk? Um, in a world in which you have no good cash, you have to do that and you can't hold equity. And the reason people hold bonds is because bonds are uh, uh, they're senior to equity in terms of uh, repayment. So if your company goes bankrupt, you'll pay the bondholders first and then whatever's left, you'll pay the equity holders. So that makes equity dangerous to have in your balance sheet as a cash reserve asset it makes bonds more secure because uh, you're more likely to get paid back a bigger fraction of your uh, investment if you uh, if you have significant if it's in bonds but then if you replace if you put us in a world in which everybody has access to a form of cash that is a present good that doesn't require anybody to fulfill any obligation that has no credit risk attached to it and it appreciates at say 5% a year. You know, imagine we're in a world in which Bitcoin is eating everything. Why would anybody want to hold a government bond or even a private company bond? I think in that kind of world, uh, everybody just holds Bitcoin. And then um, if you want to take on risk, you get equity. I don't see why you would uh, need, I, I don't see how bonds fit in. I think bonds are just uh, a, a, a make-do solution that is uh, thriving because of the uh, f because of the peculiarities of the fiat system, and I think even under the gold standard, you know, the gold is 
kind of a proto shitcoin in a sense uh, because uh, yes it has great saleability across time but it has crappy saleabilities across space and so financial institutions uh, as i was saying earlier their financial infrastructure is a part of the monetary system and so uh, financial institutions and governments are able to monetize that into bonds perhaps but hopefully bitcoin fixes this yeah interesting stuff and obviously i'm i'm with you on the idea that we are going to be living in a much more equity based society as opposed to debt but i'm curious wouldn't we wouldn't you see some possibilities there for other forms of debt then maybe even loans like just traditional loans or um maybe more more like corporate loans or corporate bonds but maybe they would charge a higher interest rate uh, and it would be a much, much smaller market than what we see today. Wouldn't wouldn't you see a possibility for something like that? I mean, I think you might, but um, I, I see many reasons why you wouldn't. I think uh, on the demand side, why would anybody want to hold um, this kind of asset where you have, um, you know, you have unlimited downside, but you have limited upside. So you get paid 5% back or 10% back or whatever if the company uh, makes a profit. But if they go bankrupt, you lose 100%. Um, so limiting that upside is something that I imagine is done in the fiat system because of the lack of a good alternative. If you had, uh, if you had hard money that would appreciate at 5% in real terms, then your downside is capped to zero. There's no way that you're going to lose if you just hold on. If you to just your huddle, Bitcoin. yeah, exactly. So when when there's an when when your money is a melting ice cube, then yeah, you're willing to take on this crappy risk because you know the alternative is equity, which is even more of downside risk. So bonds are like what is the, what has the least downside risk in in a fiat system and it's kind of you know the, this is how the fiat scam really works in that the government uh destroys the currency in order to by issuing bonds and by destroying the currency it drives the demands for its bonds so the inflation happens through bond creation and uh, which is inflationary and then that leads to governments that leads to people having to want to put their money in bonds which subsidizes governments to continue to destroy the currency if you think about it you know i think the biggest perhaps the biggest malinvestment in history is the bond market i should add this to the book it just occurred to me right now but i i'm gonna go add it right now after we get off the call. <laughs> we'll, we'll title this arguably... episode the, the biggest malinvestment in history <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably a good way of thinking about it, because what happens when the government has the money printer is that they are able to borrow, you know, and, and, I, and I remember your episode with uh, Greg Foss when you were discussing, uh, you know, if if somebody looked at the balance sheet of a government, and, um, you know, ignoring the romanticism of the fact that it is a government and ignoring the fact that it has a money printer, if you just looked at um, receipts and expenditures, you would uh, they would be borrowing at 10x the current oh, interest yeah. rates that they have and so the bond market the existence of the bond market and the existence of uh, the fiat money printers has just been uh, a massive uh, subsidy to governments to allow them to borrow at much lower rate than they otherwise would and so the result of that is that you know you have all these <laughs> terrible incompetent governments being given endless amounts of money by investors because look you know you they're managing to pay it off you look at lebanon you know they had about 200 percent of gdp um 
in uh, in, in in debt up until a couple of years ago, uh, on a, and and that money was being invested in a government that had a train authority that spent a lot of money but had no trains. There was not a single operating train in the entire country, and yet you had a train authority in the government. So you're investing literally in a company that has fake trains and phantom trains. You're investing in an electricity company that um, loses $2 billion a year and employs thousands of employees who don't even show up to work. They just get their paychecks because the politician, you know, they're just basically the mafias of the politicians and they get their paychecks from the electricity company. Like nobody would invest in this kind of mess uh, in the real world. But because of the fiat uh, money printer, you get... Uh, you get a lot of people putting their money in there. And then, of course, you know, it seems to work and they're constantly, um, all of the fiat people are constantly telling you, well, you know, it's working and government and you don't (laughs) understand because, you know, governments can make money. No, you don't understand. Governments are able to make money, so therefore they can't go bankrupt. And then, of course, they do. And then the government collapses and uh, the, the currency collapses. And then, of course, that same time, you know, the same idiots, the same uh, inflationists who are saying, no, this can't uh, be a problem, they'll use that as an excuse to promote even more idiotic and socialist uh, methods of economic and central planning. So it's 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 been a huge, huge man investment, in my opinion. And I think um, I, I can't see it surviving in the long run because of, uh, because, you know, you if you really wanted um, a cash with low downside you just hold cash and if you wanted to take on risk for returns you'd uh, want all of the upside and so you'd get equity yeah interesting way to put it and another way to put it another way to frame it just to summarize as well is it's like fiat privilege bonds have existed and become such a huge market because of fiat privilege so because of regulatory reasons so governments might mandate oh see bank xyz or insurance company you must hold x y and z percentage of bonds or there might yeah. be some financial plumbing system reason, as uh, discussed with Nick Bartia on that episode, where he was saying kind of, again, it's an institutional setup thing that because people who want a certain level of safety or security in the bond, like I'm using air quotes here, in the bond or in the government context or safety, that uh, that because of this regulatory reason, and perhaps there is some inertia reason. So there's a lot of financial advisors who will go out there and tell their customers with a straight face, go 60-40 stocks and bonds. And they'll be sitting there in bonds, just losing money hand over fist instead of buying Bitcoin when they could have just told them, you know, you could have done this. And so I guess bringing it back to the point you were saying, which is that we are going to be moving into a world that is more equity based. And I'm, I'm 100% with you on this. Uh, as an example, let's try, if I were to try to paint out I'm I'm speculating a little bit, but I'm trying to paint out a scenario what I think it might look like. We would be living in a growth deflationary world. We would be seeing something, let's just for to pick a number, let's say 5% growth in your purchasing power. So you might hold however many, like one Bitcoin or whatever. And the purchasing power of that in one year's time would be 1.05 Bitcoin, just making easy numbers. In last year's Bitcoins. Yeah, in purchasing power terms. So you'd still obviously hold only one Bitcoin. And so then, yeah. then the question is, okay, so let's say we're in a steady state, hyper-Bitcoinized world. The world is transacting in Bitcoin and we're using the Lightning Network and all of this. Then the question is, someone comes to you and says, oh, hey, Safetyn, would you like to buy my bond? Uh, I'm going to pay you, uh, you know, uh, 5%. Yeah, and th- then at that point, you've got to be thinking, well, Stefan, you dodgy bond salesman, 
how much are you, you know, how much are you offering me as a premium for this? And you might rightly say, look, Stefan, before I buy your bond off you, you're going to have to offer me a very significant premium, maybe 40%, 50%. It might be, have to be like a, a, just a crazy punitive rate such that it just the market is so small and it, it's very it's almost non-existent or just a very small market relative to the bond market of today. What do you think? Yeah, perhaps. But I think uh, the other aspect of the situation is, and I, and I flesh out the argument in more detail in the book, and I'd urge you to, uh, you can read the book now. Uh, anybody who uh, pre-orders the book, the book will be out in December, but you can pre-order it now and you'll get the, first, the draft of the book, which is almost final. It's going to get a little few edits done to it over the next uh, week or so before it's uh, shipped off to the printers. But uh, I, I flesh out this argument in more detail there. I think another aspect of it is... Um, yeah, another the, the other aspect to keep in mind here is that when you have uh, when when we have a form of money that is appreciating at five percent, and nobody needs to um, do crazy financial uh, wizardry in order to just save their money into the future, you would expect the saving would be far far more prevalent. So I think. Um, we need to think bigger about the kind of transformative impact that it would have on capital markets. We would not be living in a world in which everybody is in debt for many multiples of their yearly income. We'd be living in a world in which everybody has multiples of their yearly income and savings. I think this is the thing that, you know, if we imagine if we in the last 100 years, we didn't have any of this fiat bullshit. And people just had kept on uh, witnessing their money get harder and better over the last century. Um, think about, you know, everybody of the listeners here, and I'm sure you have listeners from all over the world, so they've experienced all kinds of different uh, episodes of inflation in their uh, family over the last four generations. Now, look back at your family in the last four generations and think if all of that, all of these uh, people in your family in the last four generations on both sides of your family, if they all had a hard money to save into, Think about how much wealth you would have today. You know, if there wasn't, if your country didn't experience the uh, hyperinflation it did in the 1970s and then again in 2005 and then all of the inflation that took place uh, before and after that, all of the high inflation and hyperinflation, if that wasn't happening, if your grandparents didn't have their business destroyed by hyperinflation and if your parents didn't have to, uh, you know, move from one country to another to start over again because of uh, inflation, if all of that was happening, if all of that wasn't happening to your family over the last four generations, and even if you, I don't care if you're from the poorest parts of the world, you would today have a lot more capital in your name. So think about a world in which everybody has a lot more capital saved up in Bitcoin. And then think about what's going to happen to the cost of capital in that kind of world. As saving increases, there's an enormous amount of capital. So the interest rate is likely to be very, very low. In fact, the way that I see um, this happening is, uh, I, I essentially see that the market interest rate is going to drop towards zero. And if you read Austrian economics, you know, from uh, uh, Mises' perspective, um, time preference is what, obviously time preference is what creates uh, interest rates. But time preference is not reflected on the market interest rates. Time preference is reflected on originary interest rate. And then market conditions and um adjustments for other things will uh, lead to the uh, market interest rate. So I think as people accumulate more and more capital, the originary interest rate could drop so much that it becomes 
indistinguishable from zero effectively or close it's it doesn't become zero actually it becomes a little bit higher than zero but then um and i, and I flesh this out in more detail in the book the interest rate is closer to zero the originary interest is closer to zero but then you've taken into account the cost of uh, carrying the money so the cost of saving and storing the money and the risk of losing it and then you get to a point where effectively it's a wash you're willing to lend out your money for zero percent interest rate as long as you trust the borrower so that's why i think we'll move towards something that's closer to islamic finance in a in, in a bitcoin world because I don't see, I don't see anybody wanting to uh, charge an interest rate because there's an enormous amount of capital out there. And so, if you can get capital, if you're trustworthy enough to be able to get capital, you'll get capital from people at zero interest rate if they trust you and they like you. And you know, your cousin sees that you're in trouble. You need some money because. Um, you know, there was a an earthquake and your house got destroyed and you want to rebuild. Well, your cousin has got 10 years income of in savings and he's going to be working for another 10 years. So he doesn't really need these. So he could give you two years income to rebuild your house and then you pay him over the next few years. I can see that happening much more frequently. I can see that in a trustworthy, a trustworthy individual in a clear situation around people that they uh, trust, you'd get the loan at 0% and the lender would effectively be um, uh, gaining, even though the nominal interest rate that they're getting is 0%, they're still getting the uh, real uh, interest rate on their money without having to pay for the storage of the money and without having to take on the risk of it getting lost and stolen. And that's never a zero risk. There's always a risk that it could get lost or stolen, whatever you're doing. You know, if you're holding your own keys or if you're storing it with somebody else, there's, you know, risks will always exist. So when you borrow from him, you're taking on that risk. If you lose the coins, he's still going to, you know, you still owe him. So I see that in, in this situation, I think, um, anybody who needs uh, credit for a situation where you actually need credit, there's going to be such an abundance of capital that you'll be able to get it as long as you're credit worthy. Whereas anybody who needs credit for a business, I don't see why anybody would want to part with their precious Satoshis to give for your business unless they could share with all of the upside. Because um, here's the other thing. The only way that we can manufacture these crazy uh, instruments like um, checking accounts and saving accounts and uh, bonds, which promise you no downside, which tell you, yeah, we'll give you a, an, an, a fixed upside of 3% a year, for instance, but whatever happens, you're going to get your money back. The only way we can have this uh, fiction is because of the magic money printer. The magic money printer is what makes this um, possible because every business has a has a risk every business can get wiped out there are earthquakes that happen there are crazy global pandemic hysterias that break out and they can shut down your business and you could have zero cash flow for a few years and you could you know you might only be able to pay back your investors or your lenders your creditors at five cents to the dollar it can happen to the best business in the world you know things can happen like this so nobody can promise you risk-free return uh, it's it's impossible and the only reason that uh, some entities can provide that is fiat privilege as you put it it's they have the printer and then they tell you well don't worry if my business goes bad you know i'm connected to the printers and the printers will make good well when you break away the printer nobody can make you that offer so they're telling you i'm giving you five percent upside 
and they're lying when they're telling you that they're protecting you from the downside. If they run out of Satoshis, they don't have a Satoshi printer that can bail them out. And so I don't like, I think, yeah, sure, it will exist in the sense that uh, some people will try it and some people will do it. But I think in the long run, people who try it are going to get wrecked. Right. Um, yeah. You know, if you do it, eventually there's going to be that pandemic, that earthquake that wipes out the business and doesn't give you the return. And um, in the case of the equity investor, yeah, they're also going to go through that risk, but they will have been compensated in that on the good years. They get the upside. Yeah. They weren't just getting the 3%. They made the 20% and the 50% on the occasional uh, uh, great year. Yeah. Excellent explanation. I love that. And it's really that we are moving into a world where in the future, like assuming the hyper-Bitcoinized world People will just buy equity in a company that they know or they're advising or, you know, things like that, where they know the industry, they know they're a technical expert in, in that field. Yeah. And they're like, this guy, these guys are going to make money because I know it. And, you know, like, even though I would have got my normal, call it 5% growth deflation level, this company, I think they're going to go 30% per year. You know, so I, I think I can, you know, it's worth it, you know. I see. Yeah, absolutely. I think basically holding on to cash is the equivalent yeah. of index fund in that world because you're benefiting from everybody's increase in productivity. Now, if you have a very good reason to suspect that this particular company is going to outperform the market, is going to outperform my cash uh, index fund, then you would invest in it. But I could imagine it in, in that kind of world for most people, investment is going to be more like a you know a marriage you know you spend years getting to know the company yeah. and <laughs> you get to know them really well and then you invest in them and it's not something that you know you, you put the allocation there and you wait for a very long time and you don't you're, you're not uh, you're not doing uh, short term trading you're not doing technical analysis on day to day movements it's 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 um, there's an enormous amount of capital in the market and that's capital is accruing uh, value just because of economic growth and then the only people that risk their capital are the ones that have very good reasons to do it and i think we'd have a lot less malinvestment in that world uh, you know we would have zero bonds and uh, we'd have no casino in the stock market i can imagine the stock market being something very boring where you know as a company say a company introduces a new um, technology or a new product um, we witness, you know, you could look at the stock price of the company and you could see, you know, this is when rumors started to circulate that they're going to introduce their new product X. This is when they put out the prototype. And then, uh, you know, this is when um, uh, the competitors or uh, or somebody from the industry issued a report saying this isn't going to work. So you could see that some people, uh, you know, there was a little bit of a decline in the price of the stock. Then they launched the product and it uh exceeds expectations so you see the price rise like you could see a rational movement in uh the product as opposed to today when essentially all stocks <laughs> random are just coins monetary policy <laughs> all stocks well they're just yeah they're random noise around m2 basically you know you just project m2 and they're just um their own circumstances are uh why they are overvalued or compared to m2 or undervalued compared to m2 but the trend is everything goes up with m2 yeah, excellent there. And so it's over the last year or two, we've seen some of the crazy excesses of that. We saw random, you know, couples on TikTok talking about how they would just buy things based on momentum, thinking they'd invented some grand new strategy when really they were just, as you said, riding the M2 growth without knowing, without understanding what was going on. And so this whole idea of Robin Hood trade around the little stocks, it, it's not really going to be like in the future, that is not, this is very much a fiat thing. And it, 
maybe Guido Hulsman, I think watching one of his lectures or maybe a book he's written, he spoke about this idea, and I think you will relate to this as well, as he has spoken about how in hard money societies, eventually people run out of things that they could invest into. And so then potentially they start seeing more patronage. And so as an example, you might be like a rich guy in the Citadel with a lot of sats and you might be like, hey, I'm going to build a cathedral for the Citadel or I'm going to build some grand project. And maybe that's the way it might operate in the citadels of the future. What do you think? I think so. Yeah. And I, I discussed this in the in the Bitcoin standard as well. You know, back then, uh, people had a lot of savings and the savings were hard money and they were expecting those savings to maintain their value for hundreds of years. And so if you were going to spend money on something, you know, you're taken away from your great grandkids. And if you're going to buy something, you think of it as having to last so that your great grandkids could benefit from it so um you'd look at how people financed art back then you know they financed things that they thought would live forever and a lot of them have you know you look at um, the sistine chapel today it was financed with gold and it's survived like gold you know it, it has been a good investment for the people who uh, put up the money for michelangelo to build it because um it's maintained its value so you had to offer real value for people in order to get their money. And I think, yeah, as uh, as that amount of saving increases, I think this is really what I'm trying to um, get the reader to imagine, which is in a world in which we don't have to constantly destroy our currency by 10% every year in order to make our payment system work, in a world in which the payment system just has uh, Bitcoin transaction fees, which... Um, which you know the advantage of the bitcoin transaction fees is that uh, as the value of the transaction scales the value of the transaction fee does not necessarily scale so currently you're paying two dollars um, but you could move a billion dollars with it which is a negligible percentage it's almost zero basically uh, so even if bitcoin transactions go up to two thousand dollars it'll still be negligible compared to moving around um two billion dollars you know you're still moving it uh, it's it's still one in a million if you're paying a thousand dollars per billion dollars so um so in a world in which you know we're paying one millionth of the transaction fee uh one million of the transaction value as a transaction fee um we don't have to put up with all of the fiat bullshit and in that kind <laughs> of world I think, you know, dare to dream. But yeah, we'd have a world in which everybody has savings. Everybody has a ton of savings. So you'd have to, um, and, and I think, you know, we'd have a world in which people um, think of the future in the long term much more. So people save more, people take care of their families much more. And so most people get born into the world with a lot of wealth that is just sitting there safely stored available for them at any moment so in case there's an emergency they always have enough money to take care of themselves and uh, if they ever want to invest in something they always have ready cash and so if you find an astonishing artist or if you find an astonishing cause or if you live in a town that doesn't have a cathedral and you think you know this town could really use a giant cathedral in the middle um, something that my uh, descendants 10 generations from now will remember me for and you find a good cathedral builder yeah i think you'd do it it's it's not really much of an option today because for most people um i think even rich people you know they need to continuously take their chips back into the casino in order to stay rich you can't just 
get rich in fiat and go home and keep your wealth and be rich. No, you have to constantly take your chips back into the casino, run them again, or put them on red or black, and uh, <laughs> hope that you get it. You have to always be investing. You have to always be following up on the bond market and the stock market and uh, all kinds of different uh, things, because otherwise you just witness your money lose value. Yeah, so it has huge implications for financial planning, family offices, financial institutions. All of these will have to dramatically shift their model uh, as opposed to the model today where, as you're saying, these rich families might have a family office or some wealth advisor, tax planner, everything doing all of these things. And, of course, I mean, some of that will still exist, of course, but it's just the way they operate will be so different. It won't be, oh, here's your 60-40 stocks and bonds portfolio or It'll be more like, okay, here's your Bitcoin allocation and here's how we're sorting out your generational trust and your, you know, these aspects. And it might be helping them manage their multi-sig keys and things like that for the long term. And um, also an interesting point as well, as you rightly said, uh, we anticipate fees will rise. Of course, right now, the block space market is quite cheap, but we anticipate a bull market both in the price of Bitcoin and in the block space uh, aspect of it. And uh, hopefully with other improvements like lightning and potentially channel factories, all of these aspects could even uh, give us even extra credit. Like even if we didn't have lightning and channel factories and all these fantastical, magical things, even Bitcoin alone would have been enough. But with, with this lightning network and all of these other layers and not just lightning, but other aspects of it, it really, you know, if we, uh, if we play our cards correctly, humanity could really do some good here. I think so. I think... Um... There is a, there's a there's a story in which uh, you know uh, people people constantly think well you know fiat is going to collapse and then the world's going to fall apart and I think um, you know the last century might have been the world falling apart I think you know two world wars and hundreds of smaller wars and an endless amount of genocides and uh, government central planning and communism and all of that. Um, Maybe we've already experienced the worst of it. Maybe, maybe this was, uh, maybe this was the damnation that we had to go through for our uh, ancestors' sins, and maybe we're now ready to uh, switch. Maybe, maybe the world is going to change, and maybe we found the technical technical solution for the problem of money that is just going to improve life enormously. I, I, I I'm, I'm quite optimistic that this is the case. So perhaps that is the white pill to finish up this episode. So listeners, make sure you go to safedean.com, buy uh, the book, sign up with Safedean's course. I I bought the book as well, uh, and I definitely encourage my listeners also to do that. Safedean, anywhere else you would like them to follow you or find you online? Well, I'm on Twitter, at Safedean. Um, so I'm always uh, uh, very active on Twitter, as uh, usually. Um, and yeah, my website, safedean.com. You can get my uh, online courses, and you can uh, pre-order the Fiat Standard, as well as my other book, Principles of Economics. If you pre-order it now, if you order the, pre-order the Fiat Standard now, you'll get the full draft of the book. And um, you, in December, you'll be able to get the uh, audiobook and the physical book and the digital book. And you can also pre-order a hardcover signed copy. And if you do so in the next uh, week or two, you, if you order the, the hardcover signed copy, you'll be listed in the book as one of my supporters. So I'm self-publishing the book. And rather than... Um, selling the rights to a publisher so that I could get an advance, I decided I'm just going to sell uh, hardcover signed copies for supporters. So if you want to be one of my supporters, go to my website and order the hardcover signed copy. 
Fantastic. Well, thank you, Safety, and it was a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you, Stefan. Always fun talking to you. Share this episode with your friends who don't understand where the biggest fiat malinvestments lie. Go to stefanlevera.com slash 296 to get the show notes for this one also. Thanks, and I'll see you in the Citadels. (laughs) 